Now, before we begin, it's important to remember that the Wealth Journal is not financial advice. And as always, before making any form of investments, I recommend that you do your own research or even speak to a financial professional such as a financial advisor. Now, with that out of the way, let's get cracking. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 29 of the Wealth Journal podcast with me, Jay Hardy. This week, I just wanted to give you a bit of a bit of an update on the Wealth Journal podcast, how it's been performing. So the last few weeks, I've been asking people to follow or subscribe. And I've noticed that literally in the past two weeks, the follow account has gone, well, it's basically doubled since I started asking this question. So huge thank you. If you've recently just followed, subscribed to the podcast, massive thank you. You're helping it grow. All I ask now is that if you can just help the podcast compound even further, tell a friend about it, tell a family member. If you find it worthwhile, enjoyable, and you think they might too, then please pass on the pod, share the podcast, and that'll um, that'll help the Wealth Journal continue to grow. Okay, so this week, the first point in my, in my Wealth Journal is the equity markets and IPOs. How do they work? Why do companies do them? Why do they use the equity markets? And really, I just wanted to go back and just underpin some of that basic foundational knowledge when it comes to understanding financial markets. So I wanted just to start with shares. Um, So yeah, point one, shares. (laughs) Let's begin. Shares are known as equities because the shareholders effectively own equity in a company. And equity is basically the difference between assets and liabilities. It's the same with your house. The asset is the value of the house. The liability is the value of the mortgage. And ideally, the mortgage is less than the value of the house and therefore the difference is the equity. And when you sell your house, you hopefully get a nice chunk of equity that you can use to put towards your next house or have a huge blowout in Vegas, which is probably the more sensible thing to do. (laughs) No, obviously not. Um, You're going to need another house, let's face it. But with shares, usually the equity tends to be profit or capital gains. And the equity market is where public limited companies effectively raise share capitals and then when them them shares are subsequently traded. And a public limited company is effectively able to raise money in, in two main ways. Firstly, it issues shares for purchase by individuals or corporate bodies, and they effectively become part owners of that company. And then when shares are first issued through the primary market, the company receives that cash, less the expenses, which it can then use to reinvest into the company. It might use that money to fund research and development, uh, investment in you know, materials or large investments like machinery, property, land, whatever it may be. The other option is to borrow money through direct loans or issuing bonds or receiving money from people who eventually become creditors rather than part owners. But this point, I want to talk about equities because that essentially forms a company's share capital. And this is the money the company has available to invest in its activities. Now, they're not dated and those shares never mature, unlike bonds. And shareholders basically agree to put the money into the company for an unspecified period of time. And shares tend to be medium to long term investments. Like any other markets, The equity market consists of a primary market and a secondary market, and there is no requirement for a company to buy shares back or eventually repay the investor. 
And it's important to remember that once the shares have been issued, the company makes no money on shares that are sold in the secondary or second-hand markets. So if I was to buy Tesla shares, I'm more likely buying them off somebody who already owns Tesla shares rather than directly from Tesla themselves. So my money is going to, to somebody else who's potentially making a profit. But what my investment does do, it helps raise the price of Tesla shares. That effectively feeds into the overall Tesla ecosystem. It will allow them to issue new shares at a higher price and also allow them to probably lend money at a better rate because the value of the company is much higher. So primary versus secondary markets. Well, primary market is where a new public limited company issues their first shares or existing companies increase their share capital by issuing new ones. So when a private company first sells its shares to the public, this is known as an initial public offering IPO or more commonly used in the UK is a flotation when a company floats on the stock market. Now, the majority of transactions, though, actually take place in the secondary market where existing shares are then traded. So, for example, you trading them with your 212 account or your eToro or Hargreaves Lansdowne. These are securities that are traded on an exchange and are listed as securities. And to be listed, a company must comply with certain regulations laid down by the listing exchanges. Many large companies nowadays are listed on stock exchanges in several countries, which enables those firms to basically seek capital internationally, so diversifying its range of finance sources. And it also helps the firm raise their profiles on a global scale. Now, the general principle is that an active secondary market is a prerequisite for a primary market to exist. Nobody's going to be issuing shares if you are buying shares in a primary market if they didn't think they could sell them in the secondary market. It just wouldn't work. So that, that has to work. And there are basically three main ways in which new shares can be offered to the market. The first one is through a prospectus issue. This is probably the most common, um, is when a company offers new shares to the general public through an investment bank that advises the company on the timing, the terms of the shares being offered, and also takes responsibility for distributing them to the public. This is generally done through a prospectus. Think of it like a, I don't know, like a university prospectus or something. Um, it gives information on the company, the shares being offered for sale. And then the bank also sort of administers the share application. It allocates the shares according to the terms of sale. It might also underwrite the issue. So it will agree, agree to purchase any unsold shares after the issue has been uh, completed. And that's in the hope of them reselling them at a higher price. It also helps maintain the price. But if, effectively, that's the risk that the that the bank sort of takes on as part of the of the issue. The next is something called private placement, and this is when new shares are placed with institutional investors. So a company will work with a bank to, to pick institutional investors to, to almost divvy up shares to rather than taking them, taking them public. And the final one is a rights issue. Now, I want you to remember this for a little bit later, but this can be done um, generally only by an existing company that then wishes to increase its share capital. So a company offers its existing shareholders new shares in proportion to their current shareholding. So let's say, for example, one new share for every three held and usually at a discounted rate to the current market price. And 
This avoids sort of the cost of a public prospectus. It allows existing shareholders to get new shares at a favourable price and generally works works quite well, but it can also be used as a tactic. And we'll cover that in a second. Now, investors generally purchase equities because they want a return on their money. And there's two aspects to this. First of all, they may buy equities with the aim of making a capital gain over time. And investors are generally advised to think of equity investments investments as medium to long term. Um, there have actually been studies to suggest that, all right, although day trading is incredibly exciting, over the long term versus the short term, the rewards tend to be fairly the same. Um, although probably day to day is a little bit more stressful. The other way is when a company makes a profit, it can distribute some of this through um, dividends to its shareholders. So well-run, financially solid companies that generate consistently good profits tend to pay good dividends. And they also see the uh, shares grow in value. And this is great for investors. You're getting both capital gains, but also income through dividends. And you'll often see that uh, some of the criticisms leveled towards the likes of Bitcoin or even gold, for example. Bitcoin gold doesn't produce anything. You don't get a dividend from them. You only get the asset appreciation. So equities sort of, you get, you get both, both really, which is why they, uh, they can compound quicker, especially if you reinvest those dividends. But owning equities is very risky because there is a chance, of course, that you can make a capital loss if the price of the shares fall. And the, I guess the, the way investors try and mitigate this is through purchasing a range of different equities in a range of different sectors, different countries, uh, because if one sector or country worsens, uh, the condition maybe declines, another sector may improve, and then the overall portfolio balances out. And this is known as diversification, you know, effectively not putting all your eggs in one basket. But when it comes to large economic shocks, for example, the housing crash in 2008, the coronavirus pandemic, diversification can't really protect an investor because when that happens, pretty much most stocks generally fall together. Now, there are sort of two um, schools of thought when it comes to diversification. The opposite is high conviction. And that essentially means that you as an investor might think, I really believe, let's say tech, for example, as a sector is going to see the highest returns, the highest growth over the next 10 years. So I'm going to weight my portfolio heavily towards tech. It's not going to be diversified. It's going to be pointed towards tech because that's where I have high conviction. That's where I believe there's going to be the biggest returns. And that's where my money is going, which is great. That's how some people want to invest. Others prefer diversification. So I can see both sides of the argument and it is very difficult to to decide which is best, especially over the long the long term. And what I find, and I've sort of, I would say my portfolio is probably more high conviction at the moment, but having a high conviction portfolio means that you've got to be right more often than you are wrong. And in my cases, and probably what my wife would say is that I'm often wrong more than I am right. So yeah, I don't know, <laughs> personal preference. So there we go. A bit of a whistle-stop tour of the equity markets in terms of how companies use the equity markets to raise finance and what happens to those shares afterwards. Now, following on from that, the next point in my wealth journal this week is Elon Musk's Twitter takeover. So the shares of Twitter jumped earlier this month when Musk announced that he'd acquired a 9.1% stake in the social media platform. And this was essentially just a precursor to an eventual offer from Musk to buy the company outright for $43 billion, 
which equated to around about $54 per share, a 38% premium over the closing price on the 1st of April 2022. Now, this is what is known effectively as a hostile takeover when one company, and in this case, Elon Musk, the world's richest man, attempts to take over a target company, in this case, Twitter, and he's done so through the acquirer going directly to the shareholders or fighting to replace the current management. And I think at the moment, his plan is to pretty much try and do both. One, he's trying to push for a shareholder vote to allow him to buy the company whilst simultaneously discrediting the Twitter board. Now, these form of takeovers often take place when a company, in this case, Musk, deems the target to be undervalued. And that is exactly why Musk has made this attempt. In his 13D SEC filings, which is what a shareholder has to submit when they acquire more than 5% of a company in the US, Musk has stated that, and I quote, Twitter has extraordinary potential. I will unlock it. So it's clear he thinks that the company is significantly undervalued in its current format. Now, like him or hate him, it's hard not to admire someone who has been able to start a brand new car company in a highly competitive, expensive space with huge barriers to entry. Not, not only that, but he's also established a rocket company, which is now valued at $100 billion and competes with the likes of NASA. Um, so he's got a pretty good track record. But what can be done about it? So if you're Twitter and you don't want to be acquired, how can you stop Mr. Musk, Mr. Musk, Mr. Musk from taking you over? Well, one strategy, and we've literally just discussed this earlier, is through a rights issue, sort of in a slightly tweaked way. And this is where an existing company aims to issue its share capital or increase, sorry, its share capital and thus diluting the shares of a, of a potential or a current shareholder. And in a hostile takeover, this can be referred to as a poison pill. And it's exactly what Twitter has done. Under the new structure that Twitter have recently outlined, if any person or group acquires beneficial ownership of at least 15% of Twitter's outstanding common stock without the board's approval, other shareholders will be allowed to purchase additional shares at a discount. And this effectively prevents someone like Musk taking over the company through just open market acquisitions, as this move aims to dilute the stake of the person making the takeover attempt. This poison pill has now been implemented and is set to expire in 2023. So do these actually work? Well, we've actually seen this happen before in um, back in 2012. With Netflix, um, their stock was struggling and famed corporate raider Carl Icahn built up a 9.98% stake in the company and basically said that Netflix should be acquired by Microsoft or Amazon. And for him at the time, he had a decent stake. It would have been likely that Microsoft or Amazon would offer a higher amount. He'd make a lot of money from that. But Netflix didn't want to be acquired and therefore they adopted the poison pill approach that would... Uh, kick in if an individual acquired more than 10%, which he criticized because he was at 9.98. Now, ICANN didn't end up acquiring any more shares and eventually he started to sell those shares once the Netflix share price had recovered. And in the end, they cancelled the poison pill in 2013, two years before it was due to expire. So it worked out well for Netflix. So interesting times uh, for Twitter. I've no idea what will happen next. Um, and yeah, let's uh, let's find out. I'm keen to I'm keen to see. 
The final point in my wealth journal this week is the term accredited investor. Now, I've come across this term a few times while researching um, for the wealth journal and just, you know, sort of general research. And it did get me thinking, what is an accredited investor? How do I become an accredited investor? Am I an accredited investor? Well, it turns out that I'm not. Um, For those that don't know, an accredited investor is basically an individual or an institution that is allowed to trade securities that may not be registered with financial authorities. And when it comes to defining an individual um, accredited investor, it's basically anyone who has an income of over $200,000 or a net worth of over $1 million. So basically rich folk. In the UK, it's slightly less. It's a hundred thousand uh, annual income, hundred thousand pounds, and a net worth of quarter of a million, and that excludes uh, property and pensions. So, yeah, accredited investors, basically, rich people, and it so happens that accredited investors get access to other types of investments that you and me potentially wouldn't be able to to partake in. And some people criticize this because it means that some of the, I guess, potentially more lucrative deals, the opportunity to invest in uh, early startups uh, are only available to accredited investors. And therefore the the wealth and a lot of the gains stay with, with the rich. And I guess one argument to that is that Governments potentially view that the general public are basically too dumb, not sophisticated enough to to understand these forms of investments, which, yeah, sometimes doesn't really sit well with me because that might not that might not be the case. Uh, and one of the arguments against that is that well, the government freely allows people to walk into a casino, into a betting shop. Uh, same in America, you can walk into Vegas and gamble away all your money pretty much by chance, but you can't get involved with some of these investments that are only available to accredited invest- investors. So yeah, it's a, it's a controversial topic, but it exists. And um, I guess the argument is that for some of these deals, they would like people with experience, high net worth, which suggests that people are, for some reason are smart and are therefore know what they're getting into. Of course, it's potentially high risk. And ultimately, I guess from their side, it's to protect the consumer uh, rather than allowing the consumer to to think for themselves so yeah i'd be keen to get to get your thoughts on that as the as the listener of the wealth journal podcast um so there we go credit investor that's what it's all about and that pretty much concludes the wealth journal this week there are all the points i had in the wealth journal so i hope you enjoyed that thank you of course for listening um and yeah, exciting times for the Wealth Journal. Some more guests coming up over the next few weeks. So I look forward to to bringing you those episodes. As always, let me know what you thought of this episode. Reach out. Make sure you uh, follow me on Twitter. I can see the, the follow account going up on there as well, although admittedly fairly slowly. And um, yeah, as always, it's been great. And I will speak to you again next week. Take care. 